I would want to push for a home of the future that remained extremely connected to the past and to what I would describe as inherent human physical experience. The ideal being a thing made by hand by somebody that you know. And the idea that the metaverse would completely dislodge you from that whole realm of experience so that you could pretend you were a samurai in 15th century Japan or whatever. I just think that that's not, I don't, I don't think it's going to be satisfying for people. I really don't. Hello, welcome to Homing In. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House and Indigo and author of A Modern Way to Live. Today, I'm really pleased to be chatting to Glenn Adamson, who's definitely one of the most erudite and interesting people that I know. Glenn's a curator and also a writer with a particular interest in craft. Now, if that conjures up an image of lace doilies and crocheted waistcoats, then don't panic. Back in 2011, he put together the amazing postmodernism exhibition at the V&A in London, which was a riot of Memphis pattern and colour. And more recently, he's co-curated a show called Mirror Mirror at Chatsworth House in Derbyshire, which has original work by designers like Max Lamb, Samuel Ross and my own lady wife, Faye Toogood. Glenn writes very beautifully and his book Fewer Better Things was a really big influence on my own book. A phrase he uses a lot is material intelligence, which is the idea that we should try to understand the things we choose to live with. Uh, so where they've come from and how they've been made. I'm not sure if it's material intelligence or just old-fashioned fate that led Glenn to find his home in upstate New York, but it really is the physical manifestation of everything he believes in. It's impeccably crafted, uh, it's also slightly bonkers, and it's like no other place I think I've ever seen before. In this conversation, he tells me about how much it means to him on an emotional level. We chat also about his place in East London, where we recorded this podcast, we talked about what it's like to be an identical twin, his thoughts on the metaverse, and all sorts of other things as well. So here it is, and I hope you enjoy it. So Glenn, let's talk about your home from your childhood, first of all. So where did you grow up? Tell us about it. I grew up north of Boston in a town called Stoneham. The name is interesting because the ground there is full of rocks, hence Stoneham. And that meant that there were no farms there in the 17th century and 18th century when it was first settled. So it became a shoe town. People set up as independent artisans, as cobblers. So there's a shoe on the town crest. Okay. But anyway, by the time I was raised there in the 1970s, of course, I was long gone. And it was really a suburban commuter town for Boston. And... I lived in a development that had been put up just a few years before I was born. It's kind of cookie cutter suburbia. So I was raised in this environment that actually didn't have much architectural or design interest. You're not the first person on this podcast to say that, by the way. It's interesting. Yeah. So what did that kind of do for you? Well, I think it might not have done anything if it hadn't been for the contrast of my grandfather's okay. world. Yeah. So he lived out in Cincinnati, but I did see him a lot. And he was both a proficient aircraft engine designer right. and also a hobbyist woodcarver. And in fact, hilariously, in his later life, he had a business card that said jet engines and wood carvings made to order. <laughs> but he would take me down to his basement and show me what he was up to with all these amazing timbers. You know, I remember especially the Osage Orange, which, as the name implies, when you cut it, it's bright, bright kind of nectarine 
hue yeah an amazing smell and that kind of very direct exposure to craft and just his whole way of thinking about the universe as a very very practical guy yeah uh, who had been himself raised on a farm in kansas that very deeply impressed me and did you make stuff with him yes he yeah. gave me the chisels i carved a, a triceratops because <laughs> <laughs> like every other kid i thought i wanted to be a paleontologist yeah and i never became crafty myself no no i'm a like real can't do so teach and write and curate kind of guy i was gonna ask you that. that's that's really interesting so you wouldn't describe yourself as handy no okay not. as i'm exactly the same fails teases me about that because I'm definitely the person that puts the picture up and then the huge crack appears in the wall afterwards kind of thing. In your book, Fewer Better Things, which I think is just brilliant and there's a huge influence on my own book, especially the kind of material section, you, you have this brilliant phrase, material intelligence, that you use a lot. How would you describe what that means? For me, material intelligence is a useful phrase because it crosses so many boundaries that we normally impose on our thinking, on our environment, on other people. So it doesn't just mean craft skill. That's the key thing. So I would argue that an engineer or a scientist or a doctor or nurse has material intelligence, and also that a historian or curator like myself can have a form of material intelligence sort of at one remove, if you see what I mean. So I would liken it to emotional intelligence. And I also think it's an important idea to talk about because arguably we are losing material intelligence as a kind of shared or common experiential dimension. I mean, if you look around a city like London or New York and you see the skyscrapers everywhere, you see the cars, you see the devices everybody's carrying in their pockets, clearly manipulating materiality is not a problem for us. <laughs> yeah. If anything, the contrary, we're doing too much of it. But what we don't have is a kind of common shared conversation around it. I think a lot of that has to do with specialization. So the people making the skyscrapers, the people making the cars, the people making the smartphones aren't necessarily talking to one another. Right. So what we don't have is that kind of artisanal exchange that would have been the norm for human existence in past centuries. Mm. And I feel like to the extent that we're losing touch with that, literally losing mm. touch with it, that can't be a good thing. Mm. Not so much, again, because it, impoverishes the objects that we're making but i think it does impoverish the social relationships we have with one another so expand on that why does it do that i think that when you have an object in front of you that you know something about and you identify with and you appreciate it in a deep sense maybe you know the person who made it or you know the materials it's made from the processes that were used to make it it serves as an instant and extremely rich point of intersection right and curiosity and engagement with other people and their lives. So for me, the key point about modern production, mass production, is not that it's aesthetically mm. disappointing. It can be, but it can also be great. You know, you can make amazing objects in factories, of course. The problem is that you are alienated from the story mm. and the experience of the people that bought that thing into being. In fact, even the people who make the object might be alienated from that story of production. That's a point that Karl Marx famously made, and I think he was absolutely right, that one of the big problems with mass production is that the workforce itself is alienated from the purpose 
of what they're doing. Their experience is fragmented and separated from an idea of kind of personal commitment. And for a healthy society, you need to find ways to replace that. It reminded me when I was reading about it that many years ago at the London Design Festival, Faye Tugan, my wife, did a show called The Trade Show, where she made 50 of her spade chairs, as they're called, and she swapped them with other designers, artists, makers, and they gave her something in return. And the show was bringing together all those kind of objects of exchange and seeing what came out of that sort of social interaction in a way. I thought that was kind of really poignant. Would would you encourage people to see objects then as this point of social interaction rather than just things to have around the place? Yeah, it makes me think of that wonderful book called The Gift by Lewis Hyde. Right. Where he talks about the added value that is infused into an object by an act of generosity. Yeah. So that's a little bit different from material intelligence because we're not thinking about how the thing was made anymore. We're thinking about the object as an event, an yeah. event of personal connection. So in, in Fewer Better Things, I use the example of a child who bends over on a beach and picks up a stone mm. and hands it to their parent. Mm. And then the parent taking that stone home and maybe putting it on a mantelpiece or a shelf in the bathroom. And then it just sort of sits there mm. and the kid gets older and you know goes to college and gets married and has their own kids and the stone's still there mm. and it marks that moment for everybody involved and I, I like that image just because it shows you that the even the quality of the object and its madeness is not actually necessary to this idea that an object can be an anchor for personal contact mm. it's more just having an availability, kind of psychological availability to that and seeking it out. I think children are really um, just so intuitive when it comes to this kind of stuff. My, my bedside drawer is basically like countless kind of pipe cleaners and bangles and little drawings. And it's actually, I find it quite hard to know what to keep and what not to keep because they are so adept at giving me stuff. And it's it's really touching. But I, yeah, I'd like to think that, yeah, maybe in 20, 30 years time, I'll I'll kind of refine some of this stuff and it will take me back to those mm. those moments. I think it's really important. You know, one thing that strikes me about that is that artists are also very, very good at that. Yeah. Artists exchange work all the time. Exactly, yeah. So if you go to an artist's house, and to some extent this is true of where I live, partly because my partner's an artist, you know, you have these conversations mm. through essentially gift giving from one practice to another. And it's often said that artists are sort of more in contact with what it was like to be a child. And again, if you go to an artist's studio, usually you see that in a kind of incredibly intense way, the way that objects can be brought into a space to generate creative energy. Yeah. It's it's not like having the person in the room. People often say, oh, it's like having that person with you. <laughs> and it's actually not like that. It's something way better. Yeah. Because, you know, when a person's in the room with you, there are certain expectations about the attention that you're going to pay them. And, you know, it's a social occasion. It's something totally different from that. It's like being led into some part of their world of memory and interior psychological space and being able to draw off of that and think about how it intermingles with your own. It's quite astonishing, really, and subtle and um, hard to put into words even. That's amazing. I love that. It's a tricky word craft, isn't it? It's very loaded because mm. a lot of us, certainly in in the UK, I think, think of slightly sort of dismal kind of village events 
you know, <laughs> we're not very good things. What, what do you think about this word craft? And do you think that that opinion is changing a little bit? Mm. I, I completely agree with you that craft is a tricky word. I mean, it's tricky enough that it's kept me writing about it for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> so I owe it a lot. Yeah, I think it has changed. It's obviously got much more purchase on the cultural imagination. And it's been interesting, just for example, to see companies laying claim to artisanal value. Right, like, like what? Well, my favorite example is the billboard I saw in New York City that said, come view our handmade condominiums. Right, okay. That, yeah. that kind of contrast. Or, you know, another example would be a Jeep commercial that I saw on TV that was using the imagery of blacksmiths to sell their Jeeps. Okay. As if these things were being beaten out on anvils. <laughs> Just completely ridiculous. It's sometimes called craft washing. Right. This idea that mass-produced object could be sold through a kind of emotional association with the traditional value set of craft. It seems to me that textile art is having a bit of a moment in the sun at the moment. Don't you think? What, what, why do you think yeah. that might be? That is interesting to see, isn't it? Yeah. Because it was ceramics first. Yeah. And now textile seems to be next. Mm. So I think that is partly about identity politics. For example, African-American quilting or South American textile traditions and all of their incredible complexity and sophistication those points of reference have become extremely powerful as the art world has belatedly tried to open itself up to these different um, demographics who, from, you know, who were excluded from those citadels of power previously. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I feel like craft in general and textile especially, because it has often been associated with women, often mastered by non-white people, has become this kind of avenue of expression in a way that it wasn't previously. I think that's a really interesting explanation, actually. I'd not thought of it like that. Just just quickly before we move on to your sort of move into being a curator, I just want to ask you about you as a kid. Are you an identical twin? Did I got that right? I am an identical twin. Because I've got identical twin daughters who are nearly five. And it is like some sort of prolonged social experiment because... You know, they pop out with the same DNA, they have the same inputs, and yet, I know it's a cliche, but they are diametric opposites as characters. So tell me about you and your identical twin and kind of what your relationship was when you were kids. It's so great, Matt, that you have identical twins, because I always say the thing about being a twin is that it makes you realize that everyone should have one. Right. And especially an identical twin. Um, but it really, at least for me, prevented a lot of the distressing things that I think happen to a lot of people, especially when you're a teenager. Right. Feeling like, oh, there's nobody else like me in the world and I feel off by myself and I'm locking myself in my bedroom. You know, I just didn't have that because Peter, my brother, was always there. And to this day, I feel like I can see into his thoughts with this kind of X-ray vision that I just don't have with anybody else. Every aspect of how we encounter the world is the same. And yet we've, of course, gone on had quite different lives in some ways. You know, he and his wife have kids. He lives in Germany. He's a historian of philosophy. So there's a lot of differences there. But it, you can almost imagine what it would be like to go and do all those things. You know, even the vicarious idea of what if I had had two daughters? Oh, it might be like that. You know? so, so you don't have any kids? No, we don't. No. When you were... Uh small because i obviously see this all the time with my daughters and people can't tell you apart 
What's that like for your sense of identity in a way? Mm. Yeah, it just gives you a very strong sense of solidarity. At least that's what it did for me. It just reinforces the sense that you're completely attached to that person and that they're the most important person in your life. Yeah. So growing up with that was very, very profound, I think. So what, is there any advice that you would offer to Faye and me as parents, so identical twins, out of interest? What should we do or not do, do you reckon? Well, one thing that our parents did that I think was quite good was to make a sort of ritual of fairness that we could then rely on and therefore not need to care so much about elsewhere in our lives. So I guess what I mean is they were scrupulous in giving us Christmas presents that were different but extremely comparable. The reason I have two N's in my name, Glenn, two N's, is because they wanted us to have the same number of letters. Wow. Peter and Glenn. So they would do a lot of things like that that actually didn't matter very much, but created this kind of symbolic register of equality. And I think that might have had a lot to do with the fact that we didn't feel competitive with one another. Mm. I think that is the danger with twins because, you know, insofar as you have absolutely no genetic advantage, anything that you do that seems better than what your twin does seems like it must be the result of effort. Right? Yeah. So it, 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 it can be very tempting, I think, for twins to compete with one another. And we just never had that. You know, we just take a lot of pleasure in each other's, you know, accomplishments and the good things about each other's lives. And we don't. And you still do. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. So I, I feel like we owe a lot to our parents for yeah. having set things up so that we seemed like we were on an, on an equal playing field. Definitely. Separate birthdays or the same birthday? Like separate birthday parties? Same birthday party. And actually, that was, it's so interesting you asked about that, Matt, because that was one of the few points of conflict. Like, I remember uh, speaking of an object with a lot of um, love symbolic value, there was a party that involved a pinata, which is, yeah. you know, this Mexican thing where you have a, you know, donkey made of paper mache that's filled with candy and you take turns swatting it with a big stick. And of course, what happened was that. I think it was my brother who bust open the donkey as it happened. And of course I immediately burst into tears. <laughs> so yeah, that was your birthday too. Yeah. W one example of poor design, uh, <laughs> the, the equality principle suddenly yeah. was lapsed. Um, so you, you, you went on to study history of art. Is that right? Yeah. Why history of art? Well, I fell into it kind of by mistake. I was one of these nerdy kids who was playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. Right. And so I thought I was interested in medieval things as a result of that. <laughs> and so I took everything medieval I could find when I got to college. And I guess it was when I was a graduate student that I did my first curatorial project, just kind of helping with an exhibition and then got a curatorial job out in Milwaukee, which was a great situation because we had a little gallery that we turned over three times a year. So by the time I was 30, I had probably curated almost 30 shows. Well, okay. A lot of them were terrible, of course, looking back <laughs> at it. But it, it was a great learning experience. And it's been one of the, along with writing, it's been one of the two main activities for me ever since. A bit like the word craft, funnily enough, curation has become a bit loaded in a way because everything mm. now is curated as well, isn't it? Does that, mm, does that annoy so you? It annoys a lot of curators. It doesn't actually annoy me very much because I think it reminds us that curating is actually not the specialist professional trade that we often think that it is. Right. <laughs> I, I think it really is the kind of thing that people do in their house, except with a bigger budget and in a public institution. That's fascinating. And you know, if you think about the word, all it means is caring for something. 
That's mm-hmm. the root of it, I believe, etymologically. Um, it's like being a curate in a church, right? Tending your flock. And this idea of like holding on to the hands, like the little hands of your objects and making sure they don't go missing as you cross the street, mm-hmm. that kind of idea of curating, I really respond to. And the idea also that you would care for them in multiple senses. Obviously, if you're working in an institution as a collection, mm-hmm. you're caring for these things for the next generation, usually working with conservation um, professionals, but there's also caring in the more immediate sense of just putting a lot into your concern for that object and putting it into the space in a way that's authentic and resonant and can actually reach the visitor mm. instead of just holding it up on high and sort of, you know, pretending that you are the owner of it mm. and dispensing your knowledge down to the hoi polloi. I really, really don't respond to that kind of curating at all. Mm. And I, I think we're lucky to live in a time where curators are thinking about it in that way rather than as an expression of a kind of power relationship. Mm. Fascinating. A very quick interlude, if you'll allow me. For first-time listeners to this show, I just wanted to provide a quick bit of context on it. So I'm co-founder of a company called The Modern House, which we founded back in 2005, and then another called Inigo, which is a couple of years old. And they are both a pair of design-led estate agencies. So rather than being constrained by geography or location, like most estate agencies are, our filter instead is design quality. So the hope is that you can go to our websites and at any one time, if you're looking for a home to buy or you just want some interior inspiration, you can find absolutely the very best homes on the market at any one time. This podcast is something we put together because we really fundamentally believe that our homes are completely integral to who we are. And aside from family and friends, probably the most important thing that we have. It comes from a heartfelt place. We do it because we enjoy it and we love it. Uh, and we get to meet all sorts of extraordinary and insightful people. Thank you so much. And back to the podcast. Excellent, Glenn. Let's move on to your home from the present, which is your place in upstate New York. I mean, it is extraordinary, but describe it to us. It is extraordinary. And I'm, I'm always a little hesitant to jump into this topic because it sounds so much like I'm bragging, but it, I really <laughs> have to it. stress. <laughs> I love it, love it, love it. And I really have to stress that everything that I say about it when I go on and on is in testament to the guys who built it. Yeah. So we are lucky enough to live there and we bought it, but it's really all about them. So their names are Philip Mayberry and Scott Walker. They kind of rocked up in upstate New York in the early 80s. They first lived at Russell Wright's house, uh, Manitoga, or Dragon Rock. Russell Wright was one of the main modernist designers in America in the 40s, 50s, 60s. And that was part of their inspiration for creating this house. But also they were very inspired by their connections to the music and art scene of the time. And in fact, the property where we live originally had a little cabin on it, like a kind of a hippie cabin from the 60s that they decorated in this extraordinary kind of kaleidoscopic way um, and filled with their tile work as well. They were potters and are still potters. And that cabin, not our house, but the cabin that used to be on the land was used as a set for the B-52s video for the song Love Shack. So if you go on YouTube and watch that video, that, that used to be in our backyard unfortunately not demolished but we find pieces of it all the time oh, do you? Um, in the forest yeah yeah little pieces of tile and like cherubs and you know all these crazy things they had um so it really brings that moment alive that late 80s moment 
did you find a chrysler as big as a whale or whatever the, <laughs> but, the lyric um, is i did ask them about the video shoot and you know there's there's a line about the whole shack shimmies and they said that that was literally true yeah it was actually a big problem for them in the video shoot because the cameras kept rocking back and forth in this flimsy little cabin where yeah. they had 60 people all playing music and dancing <laughs> oh, please, yeah by the way anyone listening please go onto youtube and check out the video because it's brilliant it is fabulous yeah i mean the hairdos alone are worth being in for <laughs> yeah. so anyway they had that cabin and it was down the hill from this rock huge boulder and they just decided they were going to build this house on top of it so that is our house so the boulder actually is exposed and intrudes into the ground floor spaces and then the crucial thing is that in addition to the the sort of modernist concrete structure, they completely festooned the interiors with their tile work. So especially the kitchen and the bathrooms, but also the stairways, you know, there's glow in the dark glazes, there's uh, glazes that look like Minoan octopi, there's glazes that just look like a kind of circus tent. It's extremely exuberant. It is exuberant. That's lavish. definitely the word. Yeah, and postmodern. Also, I feel like I'm living in this artisanal postmodern sculpture, really. It's and absolutely incredible. I, I, I find it amazing that you managed to get hold of this house, right? Because is there anything more perfect for you? Absolutely. I mean, Nicola, my partner, found it um, just on a, um, not the modern house, sadly, because it it's in America. <laughs> but, only. And, you know, it had been sitting on the market for months with no offers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because... You know, who's singular? Gonna, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was just waiting for us. <laughs> it was waiting for you. Yeah. So, do you feel like a kind of custodian as much as an owner then? Totally. Yeah. And I think that must be true of a lot of people that you talk to, Matt, that yeah. there's this kind of responsibility that you're signing up for when you buy the house. Yeah. And you kind of feel like, even if you don't literally have a plaque on the front, it's in there in your mind that you're guarding it uh, against the possible. Uh, winds of history um, and obviously a house like that you do have to put a lot into it you know we're constantly finding things that we need to tend to and you know snakes and mice come in and it's you know it's still got elements of kind of experimentalism to mm. it even, even now that it's 30 years old it, it, it's sort of it's a living thing that you mm. need to again care for so being a custodian how does that tally with this idea of home and kind of comfort and and all of that, does it feel like a home? Oh yeah, it feels more like a home than any place I've lived before oh, wow. or since, for sure. And a good example of that was that, um, although this house had a lot of great things going for it, it did not have a bathtub. Right. And Nicola really loves taking baths, so we decided to sacrifice a closet and turn it into a bathtub. <laughs> and um, then, of course, the next question that occurs to you is, well, what should it look like? Yeah. Because we're putting it in this amazing right. building. And so what we ended up doing was actually getting in touch with Philip and Scott and asking them to design and make new tiles for us. Oh, excellent. Is it in the bathroom that there is what looks like a rug, but is actually tiles, right? Yeah, that's the downstairs bathroom. There's this trompe l'oeil moment where they, they made tassels, uh, well, tiles that look like tassels at the edge of this patterned rug. It's absolutely great. Yeah. What's the landscape like around it? Is it quite isolated? It's quite isolated and it feels even more isolated than it is. We do have neighbors, but you can't see them at all. It's just forest. I think that's part of the reason that it feels such an ideal place to think and write because mm. you just feel like you're held in the, this bowl of nature and architecture and can focus as a yeah. consequence of being in the bottom of that 
because the 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 sort of decorative um, exuberance as i think you described it would, would for a lot of people would be quite distracting mm. but do you find that actually a good sounding off point for your own creativity yeah it's like it establishes a higher level of energy as the baseline right I'm also the kind of person that writes with loud music going. Do you really? Yeah. How like, interesting. I want a, I want a lot going on. Stimulus to kind of knock out the potential distraction that your unoccupied mind would have. I see. If that makes sense. So you're, you're making sure that your subconscious doesn't start wandering by keeping it engaged. Right. And I think that is so difficult for people now. Yeah. And I, I really feel for people that are in a younger generation than myself who are born digital. Yeah. And they're just so used to this kind of cross-platform flitting about from one thing to the next. And I think it's really, really hard for people to focus. I often talk to students who are learning the craft of writing and they will talk about that you know how extremely tempting it is for them to just jump onto social media instead of finishing the paragraph yeah or the sentence and if you can't stay in that this again is a cliche but if you can't stay in the furrow mm -hmm. of what you're writing obviously you'll never get anywhere and i think it's getting harder and harder for people to remain locked in like that so true yeah what what's what's your um sort of ritual for writing well i write whenever i can yeah it's it's more like the thing i pour into the negative space that's left from all the online meetings and everything else that's go going okay. on okay what i would love to be able to do is to have a clearly demarcated time that i do email and a clearly demarcated time that i do meetings and then a more kind of solid block of writing time but you know it, it might be worth saying that i'm actually quite a proponent of email it gets a rough ride from people mm -hmm. And despite the fact that we depend on it so much. And I remember, in fact, somebody once telling me that what you must never do is treat your email inbox as your to-do list. And having thought about that for a while, I actually not sure that I agree with that. Yeah. Because I think the thing that email does uniquely is immediately remind you of what people are expecting from you and what they need from you. And it's a, a stunningly accurate, immediate, a reminder of your relationships the way that it indexes those other humans in your in your life and all those dependencies i think that's quite remarkable and kind of beautiful mm -hmm. so if you can sort of detach from the stress and urgency of it and think of it as a kind of portrait of your ongoing human contact mm -hmm. i think there's actually a lot to value there and i find it a quite helpful instrument um, yeah. for getting all this stuff done but having said all that, it does not help you get something written. I think the issue that I have with it would be that someone can click urgent, but other than that, there's no way of telling where this sits on the traffic light system, right? In terms of what their expectation is of use. And then, and then I find that quite stressful in a way because then it's kind of on their terms and not on yours. Do you, do you, do you, know, do you see what I'm saying? I do, yeah. I think though that... It's, it's like a good reminder of why it's so difficult to invent true artificial intelligence. Yeah. Because humans are so good at sizing up other humans. Mm. And I feel like on some subliminal level, every time you see an email from so-and-so, mm. you kind of know where it's coming from and how worried you need to be. Right. 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 And yeah, it's again something you're not very conscious of, mm. but there's so much nuance built into that whole functionality. And also the other thing to mention is just the idea of word search. 
mm. which I think doesn't get nearly enough gratitude and praise from those of us who are culture workers. Mm. I mean, think about what that was like in the 19th century. The Victorians were famous for this, right? Mm. Endless books with everything put into these absolutely locked down headings and subheadings, page after page after page. We don't need to do any of that mm. because all we need to do is put in the one word we care about and it takes us to these very unpredictable places and there's all this chance operation as Duchamp called it and I, I, yeah thinking of the way that that word search changes the relationship that you have to your own production your own content your own thinking even mm. it's a totally different way of of being creative as a as a writer and thinker and so i, I really value that so getting back to your house in upstate new york for those who perhaps have less of an understanding of postmodernism or think of it maybe as kind of a bit glitzy and gaudy or whatever, what's your take on postmodernism? Why is it important? What's so great about it? I guess is the question. Yeah, if there's a word that's harder to define than craft, it's definitely postmodernism. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, a lot of people who I would consider to be primary protagonists of the movement mm. would absolutely disavow the term and not want it anywhere near them yeah you know i remember when my co-curator jane pavitt went to interview frank gary about having him in our vna show about postmodernism right. he almost literally threw her out of his office oh wow really like, please don't put me in your show about postmodernism <laughs> that's so interesting yeah so it, it, that's partly because there was a real culture war around it in the 80s when it was a current term but just to kind of run down the story very quickly it was uh, a term that was really not necessarily invented but certainly popularized by charles jenks the anglo-american uh, architect and theorist and in fact the cosmic house that jenks made for himself uh, is now a publicly visitable museum right in holland park which holland and we park. took a we took a, a work trip to it a few weeks ago so amazing. i've been recently and it's i mean it's unbelievable <laughs> it is amazing and so much of what's great about postmodernism is in that building you know the kind of aggressively narrative symbolic qualities that he put in there mm. you know the sort of high concept nature of it and then the embrace of ornament you know all of that is very characteristic of postmodern architecture but i've always been a proponent of thinking of it more broadly you know there's something about the fracturing of the modern settlement of mm. truth to materials and you know form equaling function and all those things that we love about modernism that had become this extremely constraining and really repressive force for people especially coming out of the counterculture of the 1960s and so what happened was that with the theoretical cheering on of people like jenks you had this young generation of artists designers architects musicians writers all embracing this idea of a kind of highly self-aware ironic self-critical fragmentary experimentation and that's really what postmodernism is so as a result of course it goes all these different directions and it doesn't all look the same and there's actually a lot of internal conflict about what's going on and some of it is extremely prescient in terms of our own conversations about identity politics so you have a lot of internal complexity in the movement if you even want to think of it as a movement but yeah. there's absolutely no question that it set up the conditions of the present you know i always say that modernism pretended to be a clear window onto reality that would show you everything in this crystalline accuracy and postmodernism is more it's like that that window were suddenly struck with a hammer 
and you realize that it was actually a mirror and moreover that it had shattered and it was reflecting yourself back at yourself in these pieces and we're sort of still in that i would argue this kind of um self-regarding complex and yeah self-aware relationship to the world around us mm. but i also think that's more true mm. i think that that idea that modernism had that it was giving you a universal hold on things was just always false mm. and the the maybe unsatisfying contingency of postmodernism is a much more truthful way of understanding our relationship to things and other people mm. yeah i mean certainly wandering around the cosmic house I suppose my overriding feeling was, well, it felt a little bit like being kind of on the set of an American sitcom. Do you see what I mean? Because everything's like, it feels kind of staged and, you know, there's highly decorative swags across the windows and the way that the kitchen's put together and the materiality, just everything, because everything's made of wood. It it, it feels like kind of someone's sort of knocked it up especially for your visit in a sense and I, and I and I suppose I felt like I was really glad it existed because I think it's very provocative mm. and I feel like there's a huge amount we could learn from it now whether one would want to live like that is another matter so I don't know what what, what do you think of a house mm. like that would you want to I mean you know you've you've got a pretty insanely decorative place in New York right would you if the cosmic house was available for you to buy and you had the funds to buy it would you buy it Ooh, that's such a great question Matt I think your point about it feeling like a sitcom set is so apt mm. or maybe even a set of a soap opera like Dallas or Dynasty. Totally. Yeah. And of course that relates to the false front idea of postmodern architecture that came out of Venturi and Scott Brown's work, you know, the mm. learning from Las Vegas, the famous book where they talk about architecture to be experienced at 30 miles an hour, just sort of rolling down the strip yeah. past one facade after another. So Jenks is taking those ideas and sort of accepting them and filling his whole mm. living space with them. I think at the end of the day, I if I were suddenly given the opportunity to live in the cosmic house, I would gladly take it. Mm. But of course I have a very informed relationship to, I, I knew Jenks well and yeah. knew what he was up to. <clears throat> so I would think I would appreciate it on a sort of meta level. So it'd be kind of yeah. meta meta, you know, postmodern is already like that. But having said that, the thing that I really love about our house is that it's, as I said earlier, artisanal postmodernism. So it does have the ornament and the color, but it's also craft. Yeah. So it has this kind of base and it's not just, you know, faux finishes on woodwork. You know, it's that kind of feeling of substantial solidity. And so I feel like we're kind of getting to have our cake and eat it too. But this place where, you know, your your house in London that we're in now is, is pretty minimal actually, isn't it? Yeah, although that's a little bit of a just a the result of a chance because we bought it over ten years ago and then immediately moved to America, so we didn't really have a chance to do anything to it. And yeah, we just reoccupied it a couple of weeks ago. Okay, I, yeah, I actually really like living in the kind of comparative blankness of the space right now. Yeah, I doubt we'll, we would leave it like that if we yeah. do stay here. In what fact, I was. Do? This is a bit of a fantasy, but I was just over at De Gournay a couple yeah. of days ago, the uh, hand painted wallpaper company, and I was thinking, yeah. A room in one of these papers, like every room, different paper. I could definitely go for that. So, yeah, yeah. There might be like more decorative handmadeness pouring in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Soon. I love that. So let's move on finally to your home of the future, or maybe an imaginary home of the future. What, what, what might it be like? Do you reckon? 
Home of the future. So uh, it happens that I'm writing a book right now about the future. It's called A Century of Tomorrows. And it's a look at the way that designers and architects, but also political figures, activists, scientists, technologists have understood the future over the last hundred years. And what I'm trying to get to is some lesson for us now. Obviously, thinking about the future at the moment is very dominated by the conversation around climate change and to some extent also a conversation around the crisis of democracy. So it's a pretty stressful conversation. Yeah. And what I'm trying to do is delve into this um, century of productive thinking about future prediction and learn something from it. And it is very interesting that the home of the future has been a constant theme of that story. Museums, individual architects and designers, and also others like home economists, thinking about the relationship between gender and the home. You know, the idea, for example, that homes shouldn't have kitchens in them and all, all cooking should be done communally as a way of freeing women from domestic servitude. So kind of radical ideas have often been anchored on the home. So when I think about the house of the future now, I wonder what the comparable radical move would be. So, you know, one thing that of course you think of is the question of the metaverse and the extent to which your actual physical location and your experiential domain would be severed from one another so that mm -hmm. no matter where you were, you could be anywhere, whether real or not. It's terrifying. Yeah, it is terrifying, you know? I mean, it's obviously entertaining. Like, all the Marvel movies now are set in these multiversal plots where people, like, hurtle through one reality to the next. And I guess my reaction to that is that that is the bad postmodernism rearing its head. Right. That that's just fragmentation and superficiality and probably also irony but without any of the openings to identity that postmodernism also gave us. It's, it's like all the surface and none of the substance. You know, if I had a vote, I would want to push for a home of the future that remained extremely connected to the past and to what I would describe as inherent human physical experience. Again, the ideal being a thing made by hand by somebody that you know. Yeah. That to me is like the platonic, the platonic object to have in your space. And of course that's expensive and a lot of people just can't do that. But again, remember the stone being picked up off the beach as something that you cherish and remember. So it doesn't have to be an expensive thing. It just has to be a matter of caring about it. Mm -hmm. And the idea that the metaverse would completely dislodge you from that whole realm of experience so that you could pretend you were a samurai in 15th century Japan or whatever, I just think that that's not, I don't, I don't think it's going to be satisfying for people, honestly. I really don't. So in terms of what that means for me, yeah. I think what it adds up to is that I feel like the home of the future for me would be the home that I already have, but just more so, you know, with more personal connections, more objects, not a lot more. I mean, I did write a book called Fewer Better Things, so it's not about quantity, obviously. <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I really believe in the idea of a, ho a house as a kind of stratigraphy of your life experience, and that it it becomes richer and more meaningful and more suggestive as years go by. And I think long term occupation has a lot to be said for it. And for what it's worth, I think the, the 
what you guys do at the modern house, I think is, is very much in that direction. You know, it's, it seems to me like the value of most of, most of the properties that you're profiling have to do with the ongoing validity of what the idea was Mm. 30, 50, 70 years ago and the way that it can be gently reinvented, Mm. you know, like the current relevance of the, of the house is that it is 50 years old and it therefore carries with it all the insights of this previous generation. Mm. Yeah. As you were talking a couple of minutes ago, it reminded me of a house that we once listed for sale with the modern house a few years back and it was owned by a librarian and he basically (laughs) would take a backpack with him to the library each day and on his way walking back in the evening he would go down to the Thames and he would find the kind of nicest best preserved bricks that he could have been washed up from the water and he'd put them in his backpack and he'd carry them home And he did this for years and years and years. And eventually he'd built up enough of a pile of reclaimed bricks that he could build a house. So he built this house. And I just think that's the most extraordinary thing because it's all about craft and it's about passion and love and and so much heart in it. And of course, it's as kind of local and sustainable as you can get. And I feel like that's the future, to be honest, Mm. personally. It's kind of what you're saying, I think. It's... um, yeah, it's simplicity, materiality. And I, I really love what you say about, actually, you're, you're kind of saying it's about being accepting of what you have as well, isn't it? And, mm. and yeah, bringing more personal objects into that sphere, but, but not necessarily questioning mm. the building that holds those objects. It's like that, that is what it is. Yeah, exactly. I love that, the, the mudlarking theory of yeah. future architecture. Yeah. People have talked about this idea of, of a homo technologicus. Have you heard of this expression? Yeah, I have. It's like a sort of new species that kind of, you know, can't throw a ball and is, you know, essentially sort of physically slightly useless. I mean, what, what do you think of that? That sounds depressing as hell. <laughs> it does. I guess, you know, there's obviously a reason that you would not worry about being able to throw a ball, which is that you'd be doing so many other things that are that seem more interesting to you. Mm. You know, so it's always good to remember that when these great replacements, super problematic phrase, but when these great replacements happen, it's good not to just worry about the thing being lost, but also to welcome the thing that's being gained. However, as a kind of craft enthusiast and admirer, I do worry, I do think that in general, there's a migration away from physical property and towards intellectual property, away from the analog and towards the digital away from space and onto the screen. And I do feel like you have a lot of attrition there Mm. in terms of just the richness of experience. And I don't buy the idea that some kind of simulated virtual reality is going to be able to make up for that anytime Mm. soon. What would be your prescription for children now to make sure that they retain that material intelligence, do you think? Well, you know, actually can give you a specific example of that because my partner's nephew is seven i think he is and i think the way his parents are raising him is very 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 admirable you know they don't they don't really let him watch much tv like Mm -hmm. he knows all about harry potter but he doesn't have much tv in his life yeah and he knows a, a lot more about plants than i do and he's just very interested in making stuff of all kinds and the thing is it's really not hard just kind of 
unleashing kids on their physical environment, whatever it may be, mm. and letting them alter it. That really is all you need because it's, this is something humans just do. So you think it's incumbent on the parents to limit the amount of access to technology to allow them the space to just explore in a physical way? Yeah, and maybe it would be a both-and thing. Another yeah. good postmodern theory, right? Um, Venture and Scott Brown always would say it's both and, not either or. Yeah. Because you obviously don't want to raise a technologically incompetent child because mm. that's going to be very disadvantageous for them. I mean, it's easy for me to say because I don't have kids. Yeah. But even in when I'm teaching, I usually try to present both sides of things. I think one of the, the most important things about being a craft specialist has been, for me, being skeptical of the stereotypes around it and remembering that there is a really good reason that mass production and industry offered itself as an alternative to hand craftsmanship mm. and that it introduced a lot of positive things into human history and so not just unswervingly always trying to wave the flag but see it as two-sided yeah i wanted to ask you something quite specific about um the story telling your book and it's the story about uh, the NASA experiment mm. and the T-shirt. So can you can you yeah. retell that one? Because I think it's amazing. Yeah, this is an amazing story about an experiment that was run where a bunch of effectively astronauts went into an enclosed sort of biosphere and lived on an entirely sustainable basis for as long as they could. And it was going really well. So they were raising their own food and they were disposing of their own waste and all these circular you know, uh, processes were underway. Which is so reminiscent of that film with Matt Damon and the Martian. Exactly. It was exactly that kind of idea, yeah. but obviously on Earth. Yeah. And what happened was that, I think it was on the 100th day, they celebrated by having their outbuilding sort of external support mechanism. They printed up these t-shirts that said, you know, 100 days in the biosphere, basically. And they put the t-shirts through the slot, whatever the way of communicating with them was. And then within a couple of days, the experiment had ended because there were so many off-gassing materials in the t-shirts that they poisoned the plants and everything died and they couldn't stay there anymore because it was so finely balanced. And so, of course, it's, a, it's an allegory about the planet that we live on. That's why it's an important story because effectively what we're doing is printing up all these off-gassing t-shirts and poisoning our, our biosphere and it just focuses the mind on that, I guess, and yeah. how inadvertent that can be. Yeah. It's it's absolutely fascinating. Have you have you thought about I mean, aside from T shirts, any of the materials within our homes that we live with and the off gassing there? Hmm. I do feel like the idea of recycling other materials that carry with them a history. So I think that the maybe the the most important thing for the future is going to be that idea of reuse. Yeah. And I think it's really the brand newness mm. of materials in general that is the problem. In terms of thinking about you as an individual, like future Glenn, what are your aspirations? What do you hope to be doing into your later life? Mm. That's a great question for me right now, Matt, because I, I think I would have had a quite clear sense of that even pretty recently. And now I'm not as sure... And it's partly because I think curating and writing themselves are changing so quickly. And the way that curating is shifting in relation to public expectation and technology is quite striking to me. So I feel like there's a lot of stuff I just don't know about yeah. what I might be up to in 10, 20 years, how global my practice can be. Mm -hmm. Do I want to stop flying entirely? 
for ecological reasons, you know, there's a lot of like really pressing questions there. Yeah. I guess the one thing I would say is that I want to keep writing until I can't put two words together in a logical way anymore. <laughs> I think that's going to be the center really it's the spine. I feel like everything else kind of comes out of that. That's interesting. Why, it, why is that? Well, I think it's because it's the hardest thing I do. Okay. You know, and it just has no bottom. Like it's a, it's a depthless well and you can just keep trying to swim down there and see how, how deep you can go. Do you not find it lonely then the writing? No, for me, writing is a matter of connection to other writers. Mm -hmm. So I'm constantly reading what other people have had to say on a specific topic or I'm writing about somebody's work. Yeah. So it feels like the opposite of loneliness to me. Well, that feels like a really good spot to end on because that's exactly what I did with your book when I was working on mine. It was really informative and useful. And I think finally meeting you, it's just fascinating. You're so articulate and you're so incredibly learned, I think, is the word I'd use. So I found it really interesting, really inspiring. So thank you, Glenn. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Likewise. Such a pleasure. Good. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Thanks very much for listening. Glenn's latest exhibition, Mirror Mirror, is on at Chatsworth House in Derbyshire until the 1st of October. As I mentioned in the intro, my wife, Faye Toogood, is one of the artists, and she's installed some pretty mind-blowing sculptures in the chapel. They're made of fossilised Purbeck marble, like sort of ancient standing stones. Last time we were there, Faye told me that each of the five stones represents a different member of our family, which did make my eyes water a little bit, I must admit. Uh, do make sure you visit our website to see pictures of Glenn's incredible house in upstate New York. The address is themodernhouse.com, but we'll also put a link in the show notes as always. We'll also add a link to the Love Shack video by the B-52s, which is hilarious and well worth a watch. Thank you so much to our brilliant team at The Modern House for their work in producing this podcast. The executive producer is Kate Taylor of Feast Collective, and the music is by Father. Thank you all so much for being here and talk to you soon.